listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. March 5, 1836. Colonel William Travis had known for several days that a situation inside the old Spanish mission called the Alamo had become hopeless. Outside were 4,000 Mexican soldiers led by Santa Ana. Inside Alamo were 189 soldiers. Travis wrote multiple letters to his commanders asking for supplies and help. He wrote, I'm besieged by a thousand or more Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword. If the fort is taken, I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. That day he gathered together those 189 soldiers inside the Alamo, And he said this to them, we must die. Our business is not to take the fruitless effort to save, is not to make a fruitless effort to save our lives, but to choose the manner of our death. And then with a flourish, Travis pulled out his sword and drew a line in the sand and said, I now want every man who is determined to stay here and to die with me to cross that line. That's where we get the phrase, the line in the sand. Well, some historians say that's not really where we got it, but it's a great story, isn't it? And it certainly illustrates the principle of what I want to get across this morning. He drew that line in the sand, and all but two of those 189 soldiers crossed that line. The next day, Santa Ana bombarded that fort, took it over, And all 189 lost their lives, including the famous Davy Crockett. That phrase, a line in the sand, has become a euphemism for drawing a line that you step across with total commitment and not to go back. Jesus did that in a statement that succinctly capsulates a lot of major theology and commitment from his followers. In John chapter 14, verse 6, and this is really the only verse we're going to focus on this morning, Jesus made that very simple statement, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so to speak, Jesus took a sword and drew a line in the sand and basically said, You're going to cross that line or you're going to stay on your side of the line, but that's a line that needs to be crossed at some point if you expect to spend eternity in heaven with me. Now, the context of that statement really begins back in in chapter 13. In verse 36, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus had been talking about leaving them. That obviously was disturbing them, and Peter says, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said, wait, Lord, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. 
to a certain extent, Peter was actually crossing that line. He's saying, I'm going to commit myself regardless of what it means. I'm going to step across that line. Jesus answered and said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then he launches into that, those comforting words that really just give us so, such a sense of peace and calm and security. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas says, hold, hold, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Time out. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And it's in answer to that question that Thomas raises that Jesus makes this profound statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in that simple declaration, Jesus, so to speak, took out that sword and slashed three major heresies that would haunt us from that day forward in church history. Universalism, pluralism, and annihilationism. Now, I realize those are big words, and maybe they push you a little bit, but hang, hang with me here. I want to talk about these for just a few moments. This is such a compact verse and statement that Jesus made that it's important for us to embrace this and to understand it because it really is foundational for who we are and what we do as a church and, in fact, what we're trying to do in the Great Commission and in missions around the world. He addresses three heresies that will arise in church history or isms, if you will. Let's talk about those for just a few moments. And, and hold with me, this is not just an academic exercise. It's really important for us to understand what Jesus is getting at here. When he talks about, I am the way, he basically slashes the idea of universalism. Universalism is basically the idea that there's more than one path to God. In other words, all people will ultimately make it to heaven. Universal. Everybody's going to make it. So whether you believe in Jesus or Buddha or, or Muhammad, it doesn't make any difference according to the universalist. You're going to make it. It wasn't long in church history before this, the, the heresy raised its head through one of the church fathers, Origen. And he believed in universalism. But it was one of the early church councils that knocked that down and said, no, that's not what Jesus meant. Not everyone is going to make it to heaven. It is not universal that everyone's guaranteed to get there. Here's a picture of a church in Washington, D.C. This church actually exists. You can go on their website, and here's what they say. This is the Universalist Church of America. In other words, there are churches that are devoted to this idea of universalism. On their website, they say, our particular community is both liberal Christian and universalist. That is, liberal in which there is no creedal test to become a member of this church. In other words, you don't have to believe anything, but you can be a member of this church. Universalist in that we affirm that no soul is forever lost from an all-conquering love of God. And so here is a church that is meeting today in our nation that says, it doesn't matter what you believe, you're going to make it, you're all right. I, I, I continue in their, in their website where they say, 
We honor your faith. We are a spiritually diverse congregation of people who seek to join faith and reason as we encounter God together. We acknowledge that each person's religious beliefs or their choice not to believe are the outgrowths of culture, conscience, and experience. In other words, where do we get what we believe? Here in this church, we say, here's where we get what we believe. They're saying it comes from your conscience or your experience or our culture. We are a congregation of Unitarians and Trinitarians, believers and non-believers. Imagine that there's a church like that. That it says, basically, we're gathered, but it doesn't really matter what you believe or if you don't believe, we're all basically going to make it. Now, that becomes a really stark example to us of universalism. We can sort of understand that as we take a look at a building and a group of people that are meeting that way, but the reality this is that this idea of universalism has infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ. This used to be a debate among liberals, but today the evangelical world is debating this. Surveys show that from 25 to 50% of Christians, in quotes, believe in some form, some form of universalism. Baylor University did a survey of religion. They said 69% of churchgoers believe that everyone will go to heaven. The Pew, which is a, a, another uh, survey company, the Pew Forum says that 70% of Americans with a religious fili- affiliation say that many religions, not just their own, can lead to eternal life. And so we have books like The Whiteness of God's Mercy by Clark Pinnock that basically opens the door to this universalism, and these are considered evangelical men, men like Rob Bell, who was considered at one time evangelical, that in his book, Love Wins, says basically we're all going to make it. And this is a, this is a doctrine or a, a, a issue that used to be debated among the liberals. Now it's being debated among the evangelicals. But Jesus made the statement that he is the way. And that three-letter word is a big word. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. It would have been a game changer had Jesus at this point said, you know what, I'm a way. You can pick your own, but I'm a way. I'm a truth. There's many truths out there, but I'm one of them. And choose your own life. Instead, Jesus chose that definite article that simply said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. That's a big word. But you say, do you really want to pin your whole doctrinal statement on one little three-letter word? Well, just listen to a few of the other verses in Scripture that just keep pounding away at this idea that there really is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among men by which we might be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God, there's one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Not many gods, there's one God. There's not many mediators, there's one, Jesus Christ. John 3.18, he that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door 
through which men must enter. John 3.36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And we could go on and on, quoting verse after verse after verse. There is an exclusivity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus made this bold statement in which he slashed that line in the sand and said, you're going to be either on that side of this line or you're going to be on this side of that line. I am not just a way, I am the way. If you plan to get to heaven, you're going to have to come through me. And that was a radically bold statement that Jesus made that day. But yet, universalism undercuts that. It says, nah, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You're going, to be, you're going to be all right. Even if you don't believe, you're going to be all right. And it obviously attacks the seriousness of sin because it says it doesn't really matter what we do. God's going to save us anyway. It attacks the divine justice and wrath of God because the assumption is God is just too nice to not condemn, to condemn any of us. And it certainly attacks evangelism and missions because if Jesus is not the way, there is no reason for worldwide missions for the Great Commission. I've spent my whole life around Great Commission work. First of all, as a missionary kid growing up in Africa and then being a missionary myself and then helping to get others to the field and being involved in the missions agency. As I just turned 70, if this verse is not true, I have wasted my life. Why? Because if everyone's going to make it, there's no reason for missions. There's no reason for declaring the gospel. There's no reason for evangelism. There's no reason for a church budget that is devoted to missions. You see, if Jesus is not the way, and everyone's going to make it all anyway, we can just stop the bus and forget about evangelism, forget about missions, forget about the lives that we have devoted ourselves to. And so Jesus makes this bold statement, the line in the sand, I am the way. Notice secondly, he says, I am the truth. Truth simply being that which is in accord with reality. Well, that's what's really reality. Pluralism, in its general sense, calls for peaceful coexistence. And when we talk about a society like North America, like the United States, we are a pluralistic society in that we give freedom for people to be who they are and what they want to believe. We are not forcing people to believe one thing. We have freedom of speech. We have the ability to believe what we want to believe. So in a certain sense, we are in a pluralistic society or pluralistic culture. That's part of what grants us our privilege of being here this morning without, without any kind of persecution. And so on the one side, we can be thankful for pluralism. But when we take pluralism and define it a little bit more narrowly within the religious context or within the Bible world, we've got a totally different story. Because basically, religious pluralism is, based, is saying all religions are equally true. So even though we may differ on some points within theology, they're all true. There's no one religion or denomination that is the sole proprietor of truth. 
There is, according to pluralism, more than one way to salvation. So universalism is basically saying, okay, we're all going to get there. Pluralism is saying all truth claims are equally valid. And we're living at a phase in world history, especially here in the West, in which that idea is rampant. That there is more than one truth, and that even though truths seem to differ from each other or clash, they are all equally valid. And it's, it's, it's a difficult thing for some of us to process. Barna says that 59% of adults believe that, that Christians and Muslims worship the same God even though they have different names and beliefs regarding God. In other words, the majority of people will simply believe in pluralism. Now, to be a Christian, there are some basic ideas that you have to buy into. There's sort of a line in the sand that you've got to cross. One of them is that Jesus is God. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you're in big trouble. A second idea is that Jesus died on the cross. And a third basic idea is that he rose from the dead. Those are three foundational ideas in Christianity. And if you don't buy into those three things, you are not yet a Christian. Islam denies all three of those. Oh, they believe that there was a guy called Jesus, but that he wasn't God. That he didn't really die, and he certainly did not rise from the dead. And so Islam is in conflict with Christianity, but yet pluralism would say, no, both of them are right. We're all heading towards the same direction. Whether you are a Muslim or whether you are a Christian, you are going to make it. We reject pluralism simply because of verses like the one we're looking at, John 14, verse 6. If John 14, verse 6 is not true, there are countless hundreds of thousands of missionaries that have wasted their lives. If pluralism is true, we've spent billions of dollars sending missionaries all over this planet to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've wasted those dollars. You see, there's a lot at stake as to whether we cross this line that Jesus drew on the sand whether we really buy into this idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, not a truth, but the truth. There is only one truth. My parents who devoted 50 years of their life in remote villages in northeastern Nigeria wasted their lives if this is not true. A couple of years ago, John Allen Chow tried to reach some remote people on the North Sentinel Islands and died at their arrows. And the world looks at John and says, you're a fool. Why? Because they're pluralistic. We honor him because he understood that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I've spent about half of my life in Africa And in Africa, one of the characteristics of Africans is they're very easily able to syncretize or to mesh different religions together. They just have a proclivity towards that. And so you may hear of great reports of of tremendous conversions in Africa 
But the reality is, in many of those instances, what they've said is, oh, we believe in our, our animistic spirits, but we're going to add Jesus as another God, just to hedge our bets, just in case. And, and since they sort of worship their ancestors, they figure, well, Jesus is closer to God than our ancestors, so maybe that would be a good way to contact God as well. So it's easy for us as Americans to simply go there and say, believe in Jesus, and say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. But what they've done is they've taken Jesus and added it to the multitude of of gods that they already have. But this is not just a problem in Africa. This is a problem with us, the United States, where people hedge their bets and they say, you know what, I, I better add Jesus to my life just in case. I have other things that I'm worshiping, other things that are important to me, but I better add Jesus just in case. And so we live in a pluralistic culture, not only politically, but we also religiously in North America live in a pluralistic culture in which, unfortunately, in many of our evangelical churches, we've not bought into this idea where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and then number three, the life. Annihilationism. Annihilationism basically simply says There's no existence after this life. You die, that's it. It's a belief that unbelievers will not experience an eternity suffering in hell, but instead they'll be extinguished. That's annihilationism. Just a big long word that simply says, this is it. You've got your 70 years or so, live it now because we're going to die. We're going to simply go out of existence. There are groups that hold to this, like the Christian scientists, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventists. They hold to this idea that once you die, that's the end. That's finish. Atheists and agnostics obviously hold to that. But yet, evangelicals hold to this as well. And men like John Stott and Clark Pinnock have written and are honored in the evangelical world. But yet they are saying, when it's over, it's over. There is no such thing as eternal life. Now, we may not be so bold as to declare that and say in our doctrinal saying, we don't really believe there's any life after this life. But practically, I wonder how many times we actually practice annihilationism. I sort of live my life as if there's no life after this one. And so I don't want to be critical of others. I want to examine myself to say, am I living my life today in view of the fact that there is going to be an eternity? Am I investing my time and my treasure because I really believe there is an eternal kingdom in which we will reign with Christ? Do I really believe that there is life after life? Annihilationism simply says, no. Without the resurrection, and that's what Jesus is referring to, He said, look, they're going to put me on a cross. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to prove to you that there's life after death. Without the resurrection, there is no justification from our sins. Romans 4 simply puts it that way. Jesus Christ was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Resurrection is not just something we talk about on Easter Sunday. 
Resurrection, the resurrection, the life that Jesus demonstrated is something that, that, that you and I depend on every single day and is part of the gospel message and we cannot eliminate the resurrection from the gospel message because it's not good news that somebody died, it's good news that somebody lives. And our life, Jesus being the life, is what gives us hope that there is life after life. We are made righteous because of Christ's resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul puts it this way, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are yet in your sins. It envisions a courtroom, it's a legal term. And he says, you are basically still in your sin if Christ be not raised. If pluralism, universalism, and annihilationism are true, there's no need for missions. There's no need for us to evangelize. There's no need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the issues that has always been around, especially in the missions world or when you start down this train and start thinking about this idea, is what about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Does that seem really fair for you, for somebody in a remote jungle somewhere that has never heard the name of Jesus? Surely there's some space there for universalism or pluralism and, well, we can kind of buy into the life thing, but, but what about those kinds of people? Well, John, Romans chapter 1 addresses that issue. Paul writes and says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of people that have not heard. So the question is, what about those that have never heard? What can be known about God is plain to them because God showed it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And basically, Paul is arguing there, you can see that there is a creator. All you got to do is look. But you see, the stars are not enough. Knowing that there is a creator is not enough. In verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, that same passage, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Francis Schaeffer put it this way, General revelation does not provide enough light to save, but does provide enough to condemn. Creation shows God's power and majesty, but it does not proclaim the name of Jesus. And that's why some of us are engaged in missions. That's why we as a church budget towards missions. That's why we are concerned about evangelism and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Creation is not enough. But Romans chapter 10 says there has to be a church like this one that will sin because how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe on him in whom they have never heard? 
And how will they hear without someone preaching? You see, there has to be someone that takes the gospel of Jesus Christ and declares it to them. That is what puts urgency in our, our endeavors in, the, in world missions. That is what gives us the motivation and the, and the drive to take the gospel to people that have never heard before. You probably remember the story of Cornelius in the book of Acts. I believe it was chapter 10. Cornelius, the Bible says, was a, and here's the words that are used to describe him. He was devout and God-fearing. Now, if your neighbor was devout and God-fearing, you'd probably give him a check mark and say, okay, you've crossed the line. You're with us. Well, Cornelius was a guy that gave generously to those in need, and it says he prayed to God regularly. Surely Cornelius must be saved. A devout man that fears God, that gives to people freely, and that prays regularly, surely he would be a, uh, he, he would be a Christian. But God in his grace orchestrated that Peter would intersect with Cornelius and give him the gospel and tell him about the fact that Jesus had arrived, that he was crucified on the cross, that he rose again on the third day, and he gave him the gospel. And it was at that moment that the Bible says that Cornelius and his house believed. They crossed the line. A line was drawn in the sand, and he had to cross that in spite of his goodness, in spite of his zealousness, in spite of his devote worship of God. Now, I realize as we talk about this, this is a hard message. This is a really difficult verse. I am the way? You mean universalism isn't true? I am the truth? You mean pluralism isn't true? I am the life? You mean there is life after death? It isn't just this life that we live it up? You mean there really is something that we need to be living for for the future? Yeah. But this is hard for us. And this is a hard message for us to declare. So you'll see a lot of people backing off this one. You've seen it. You've seen famous preachers go on television. They'll be interviewed by different people. And they'll ask them point blank this question. You claim to be a Christian, but what if I'm a Muslim? Is that all right? And you'll see evangelicals waffle all over the table on that one because they don't want to come out and declare like Jesus, drawing a line in the sand, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the temptation is for those of us who are involved in evangelism to want to back off that one or maybe soften it a little bit because it sounds so harsh. In the heat of the battle, you may want to step back across the line. And you'll hear people saying that's some of the most bigoted, narrow-minded, arrogant statements that I've ever heard when you start quoting verses like John 14, verse 6. One of our missionaries wrote an article, is it nasty to be narrow? sometimes we feel that way. Is it really, this seems so hard for us to think in terms of people that are in remote jungles have never heard the name of Jesus that they're not going to be in heaven. But you see, this is what drives us because we realize that without the gospel, without the name of Jesus being declared, people are lost. That's why Paul got himself into trouble so much. If he had been pluralistic or universalist, no one would have cared. But when he started coming along and declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden that was an affront to people. And they hated what Paul had to say. 
in the early days after Christ and in Rome, many Christians fled to the catacombs. And if you go to Rome today, you can go in the catacombs. You can see where Christians live. They had to flee because Nero was persecuting them. You know, he would have never persecuted them had they not believed John 14, 6. If they would have just said, yeah, we worship Jesus plus Nero plus the other gods, they'd have been okay. But this is an offense to people to think that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is a doctrine, as we talk about it, there ought to be a tear in our eye and a compassion in our heart and realize though this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus, what he did was with flourish, he drew that line in the sand and you and I can either resist that or we can say that's what Jesus said. We didn't write the book. These are the words of Jesus. There is only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. If we didn't quite get it right, he just underscored it with the last phrase, no man comes to the Father but by me. Just in case you misunderstood what I am the way, the truth, and the life man means, he says, no one's going to get to the Father except through me. There's the line in the sand. Sam Houston followed the Alamo and led some rebel volunteers to face Mexicans. They had zigzagged across Texas for nearly a month. But the thing that kept them going was that famous saying, remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. And that battle cry to keep them motivated was, this is so important that if it kills us, we're going to do this. But for those of us who are Christians, it's not remember the Alamo. But this morning, I hope that you will remember John 14, verse 6. And there's a lot of theology that comes out of the Bible. There's a lot of verses, but this is just one that sort of compacts so much into one little phrase that you can memorize this one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Let's say that all together. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There, you've learned a verse already. But I hope that your battle cry will not be remember the Alamo. It'll be remember John 14, 6. And in the heat of the battle, that's part of what keeps us going as missionaries. We have to keep reminding ourselves, Jesus is the only way. If I'm not here in this remote village in northeastern Nigeria, there are people that are going to die and spend eternity in hell. And this is what keeps us going, and we have to keep preaching this to ourselves. And this is something that even though we may buy into and we may affirm here as part of our doctrinal statement of the church, we constantly have to remind ourselves of this battle cry, this line in the sand that Jesus drew and said, there's a line in the sand that you have to cross and you have to stay there, that Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth. I wonder if perhaps this morning... You might be here, and this is kind of the first time you've really wrestled with this concept. You didn't realize the line was so distinct, and that you actually had to cross that line and give up trusting in anything else or anyone else or any other religion but Jesus Christ, that you actually had to step across that line for salvation. But this morning, you see the fault 
in universalism, in pluralism, and you see the hope in Jesus the life, I wonder if this morning the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart and you would say, I I need to cross that line. Jesus drew it hard and straight. There's no budging on that. You either step across or you stay where you are. You either accept Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, or you still try to figure out how you can make it to heaven on your own, or come up with your own beliefs, or come up with your own theology, or come up with your own religion. You're either on one side of that line or the other, and so my, my invitation to you this morning is if you've never crossed that line, we can help you to do that. The single most important thing that you'll ever do in this lifetime is to decide where you're going to spend the rest of, your, of eternity. And this morning, you may, have, you may be a member of this church and mentally affirm to our doctrinal statement, but yet you've never really grasped this and bought into it and actually taken the step across the line and said, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm not going to try to get to God any other way except through Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. If you're like that here this morning, you've never crossed that line, would you say, Paul, I'd like to cross that line today. Would you just slip your hand up right now and indicate that to me? I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. I just want to know, can we be of help to you? The single most important thing in your life right now is whether you're going to cross the line. I'm going to remain up here after the service, and if I can be of help to you, our pastors will be here, I'll be here. There's no more critical question for you to answer than is whether you have crossed that line. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We struggle, Lord, with the hardness of this statement, but yet, Lord, we believe it. And I pray, Lord, that you would drive us first of all, to our knees before you, but then out to the world with this message and that you would use us to accomplish your purposes on planet Earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's Word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.